Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I am here at the Center of Oral History and Digital Storytelling at Concordia University in Montreal. Canada's national parks are spread like beautiful pearls throughout the country. As a young high school student in the 1970s, I worked all summer in one of these parks, Prince Albert National Park, in the Conservation Corps. I was already familiar with the place. This was the park where one of Canada's first environmentalists, the famous, or the infamous, depending on your perspective, Grey Owl, worked with his wife, Anna Herio, in the 1930s. From the time that I was 15, I would canoe every summer to his remote cabin on tiny Lake Ajouan. These experiences became the source of a lifetime love affair with remote spaces in Canada. However, there was a darker side to the establishment of Canada's parks. In the case of Prince Albert National Park, it was the removal of Indigenous residents in the park to an area outside of the boundaries of the park. Today, to talk about this darker side is Ronald Rudin. He is a professor of history at Concordia University and the author of Kujibuguac, Removal, Resistance and Remembrance at a Canadian National Park, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2016. His previous books include histories on English-speaking Quebecers, the French banks, the Case Populaire of Quebec, Collective Memory, and the Acadians. Professor Rudin is unique in the sense that he is also a documentary filmmaker who has turned history into documentaries, all focused on how the general public comes to understand their past. Ron, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thank you very much. So what was the uh, precipitating event that led you to research and write this particular book? So the project that I did prior to the Kushbukwak project uh, dealt with the 400th anniversary of the beginning of, uh, of Acadie. French settlers of Atlantic Canada had settlements prior to the creation of French settlements in Quebec. Uh, the first one was in 1604, and in 2004 there were various celebrations uh, or commemorative events uh, to mark this event. And um, as part of the project that I was doing, and, and, and which included a documentary film, I was on a, a tour at one point with a group of Acadians who were going to different sites of memory that were important to, uh, to the Acadian history. And just by chance, we were at the site where the Acadian flag had been uh, designed and sitting at a picnic table, as stories uh, you know, were often told around picnic tables. And it turns out that we were something like two kilometers away from Kushbukwak um, National Park. And the Acadians that I was with um, understood that I was an outsider, and so uh, generously, you know, would occasionally ask me uh, if I knew, you know, one story or another. So in this case, they asked me if I knew the story of the park, and I shrugged my shoulders, and they started telling me the story about a park that had been created, about Acadians had lived there, had been removed, and of course for Acadians, removal was important because they had been deported in the 18th century, they told me about the resistance of the park and particularly told me about the one individual who was the leader of the resistance who still lived in the park and still lives there today, almost 50 years after the park was created. So, you know, I figured that this must have been a story that had been told many times. Uh, and while it has in uh, various forms of uh, popular culture and in terms of poetry, novels, music and the like, there had really been no historical treatment of it. Uh, the archives had never really been examined, and so there was a kind of a project waiting to be done. Well, can you give us a 
quick sketch of the history of this particular national park in New Brunswick, because most of us from outside that province really don't know much about it. So uh, in the, the late 1960s, Parks Canada was looking for ways to extend its uh, uh, network of parks uh, to the east. It, of course, as you said, began in the west. So it was searching for sites, and the New Brunswick government had the idea that a park uh, on the east coast, and Kuchibakwak is on the east coast of New Brunswick, would be um, an attraction to tourists. And so they saw a cash cow, in a way, uh, by creating the park. So in 1969, an agreement was signed. It was kind of normal Parks Canada operating procedures. It was responsible. It would take on the responsibility for building a park. But the province had the responsibility for handing over land that was cleared of all residents. So the idea was that you would give over to Parks Canada this pure land, uh, nature, uh, unpolluted, in a sense, by um, the presence of people. Those people were mostly Acadians, about 1,200 of them, 250 families, not who believed that they, you know, had lived for generations on the land and could continue to do so. The planners and the government officials believed that they were all uh, so poor that they were doing them a favor, um, and the removal would improve their lives. Because of this difference of opinion, there was significant uh, pushback. Uh, resistance on various uh, occasions, shutting down the park. Ultimately, though, most individuals, almost all individuals, had no real choice uh, but to move, although uh, not very far from the park boundaries and not very happily. And the park opened, uh, effectively opened in the mid-1970s, although one of the individuals, Jackie Vautour, who's become a kind of Acadian folk hero, uh, refused to leave, uh, squatted on his land, and remains there to this day. Now you talk about the park being uh, attractive for visitors and at least perceived by that uh, as that, but was there anything unique from an environmental standpoint about the area and uh, how were the boundaries of the park actually drawn in terms of this environment? Well, the park, uh, yeah, the park does have a number of, uh, I mean, it's an absolutely spectacular park. I have some guilt whenever I go there and uh, enjoy it. I've actually run a marathon through the park and was told by my friends whose property I ran across that it was okay. Um, so spectacular beaches, uh, long flat beaches. At some point you could almost see the tip of PEI uh, from the beaches, marshes just behind the beach. They're really quite spectacular. Acadian forests um, in, a, in a kind of way that you don't see uh, many other places. So there were a number, um, so once it was kind of manicured by Parks Canada and trails were put through, uh, it, it, it really is a, quite a spectacular, quite a spectacular park. And for Parks Canada, they, they were in the process, because I saw this in documentation, of trying to figure out what a park looked like once they moved away from mountains. And there, there's lots, uh, and this wasn't only true of Kushbegwak, it was elsewhere, as they were kind of looking particularly in Atlantic Canada, uh, sort of dealing with a landscape that was just uh, so different. When they went to Cape Breton, they still had, you know, elevations to deal with, but but in, in a place like Kushibaguac or even in Fundy National Park, um, they they were dealing with, uh, you know, flatter, flatter environments, landscapes that didn't have that kind of drama, uh, but just the same had, had bogs and marshes and beach and forests 
in a combination they wouldn't have found elsewhere. As for the question of how they do the boundaries, those were totally arbitrary. Uh, and there was a certain amount of mission creep uh, in all of this because the original boundaries of the park were really quite limited. Um, and then as the park planners, never really thinking much that every time they expanded the boundaries of the park, there were more and more families that would be eliminated um, from their own homes, you know, kept finding reasons why they needed to expand it. They, they, had, they had reasons that I've never understood, I still don't understand, uh, about how they needed a buffer between the areas where tourists would largely uh, populate the park and the exterior of the park. This is true even today. I, uh, the, the individual who squats still on his land, nobody, no visitor to the park would ever know he was there because he's nowhere near where the visitors go and he's probably 10 kilometers away. Um, but the park believed that it needed uh, in order to, for their own um, logic, to keep the integrity of the park that the borders needed to be pushed further and further back. I do think this was a 1960-ish kind of planning Thing. Just just describe that a bit, because uh, obviously the 1960s view was that the removal of residents was necessary to create nature, as the uh, folks in the federal government saw it. And uh, this is probably a view that was held beyond the government of Canada. It was probably held by a number of people at the time. Um, and so nature could only exist if there were no residents in the park. Visitors, yes, but no residents. Can you just explain this perspective? Uh, and did you discover what its origins were? Well, the origins go back to the 19th century uh, when the Americans began creating national parks, particularly Yellowstone, uh, and it was called the Yellowstone Model. The, the idea, again, was that um, to perceive nature... I mean, this is, uh, for me, this was kind of the... Uh, the wow moment in the whole project in terms of our understanding of the environment because the notion is, or, or the principle is that um, when you look at nature, if it's really to be called nature or natural, that frame can't include people. And if we believe that nature is something that people don't live in, it might help us understand why we're in the mess that we're in now. I mean, if we think of people as being part of the environment or part of nature, more, more precisely, maybe we would have been better stewards of that nature. But that was the perspective of the time, and it had a long pedigree. Parse Canada, of course, violated it as often as they uh, observed it. I've just been to Banff, and there certainly are people permanently residing in the park. But as they built, their, um, as they built the, uh, the network, and particularly um, as the planners, and, and I think the nature of planning in the post-war period is important here. There was a kind of brutalist uh, notion about how people could be and, or should be uh, moved in order to achieve some larger, more important goal. So if the goal was to attract tourists and to show them nature, then the people needed to be removed. So how was the, the removal handled by Parks Canada? Well, they, they, they came in and they went around putting up markers, stakes, on people's land. This was sometimes the first that the individuals who would be removed knew what was going on. There was often no advanced uh, warning 
you know, so there would be whisper campaigns uh, among the uh, among the residents. I interviewed a number of the former residents for the project, and they would, uh, you know, tell me that they would suddenly see stakes going up, so they knew something was going on. The the park. Uh, Parks Canada created, um, well, I should say the Environmental Government, because they were responsible for removing the population, uh, created a map that didn't exist before and was designed entirely in order to do a kind of orderly removal of people from the park. And so the, the kind of planning of the exercise, um, you know, was done with uh, kind of military precision. Um, they divided the park into various sections. The sections would be removed in some sort of uh, order, dealing with one after another, which meant that if you were in the, the second or third wave to be removed, uh, you would be watching all this time while your neighbors, which weren't very far away in the next village over, because there were seven villages that, that were removed, uh, you would watch them being removed and just sort of you know feeling the tick-tock of the clock uh, until your turn came. Uh, people were lowballed. Uh, they were offered very small compensation for their land. I mean, it was clear from the documentation I read this was intentional. Uh, the people were seen as, uh, well, they were poorly educated, but that doesn't mean they were stupid. Um, but that was the, the view was that they could probably be convinced to take something less than what it was really worth. Uh, again, this was all on the back of the New Brunswick government. Um, which was hoping to spend as little as it could in order to be able to turn the park over to the federal government, which would then build the park. And the irony, of course, at all of this on the provincial side is that the premier at the time, Louis Robichaud, was the first Acadian premier. And so you had an Acadian, if you will, you have a kind of Acadian premier who's responsible uh, for the removal of largely an Acadian population. Well, this, this I find fascinating because, of course, Louis Robichaud introduced equal opportunity and that was intended to uh, basically deal with all of the inequities between the Acadian population and the majority population. And at the same time, he endorses this. I presume that the province uh, must have seen other advantages or were paid by the federal government. Or Well, this was entirely consistent with what Robichaud's plans were. I mean, I know he gets some credit sometimes right. for, for, that, for the Equal Opportunity Program. Uh, but there are aspects of it that are perfectly consistent with what he did at Cushbeguac. So to begin with, it was a centralizing process. It was designed to equalize the burden, particularly to, to, to lighten the burden, the tax burden, on poorer people, uh, and to equalize the level of services. So local ability to tax property was pretty much eliminated uh, so that taxing power was centralized at the provincial level, and then services would return in a kind of equal setting, uh, in equal manner uh, to, to localities. So this is, on, on some levels, democratic and equitable, but also incredibly bureaucratic and indicating a commitment to take power and control and autonomy away from local communities and place it in the hands of experts uh, at some distance, which is precisely what was being done when they expropriated the people of Kushibaguac. Again, it was sort of uh, ignoring the vitality, actually, of the local community um, because they had a kind of view that they were going to make these people better. So in the same, same sort of optic of providing services to poor people, they genuinely believed that when they relocated people 
they would make their lives better. Uh, so much so that they had, um, they, they called it a process of rehabilitation. And so there were really two things going on simultaneously. There was the removal of the population, but then there was its rehabilitation. And that was the term that they constantly used. And they had counselors that would go inside the homes of, uh, of some of these families before they moved in order to make them better equipped to live appropriate modern lives afterwards. Uh, my favorite story was uh, I, I interviewed uh, a woman who had had uh, a large number of children and in fact operated the kind of general store uh, out of her own house, made all the clothes for her children. Uh, she was a force of nature. And they came into her house. They had sort of the, the, the nerve to come into her house and tell her how she could be a better mother and housewife uh, if she only listened to the advice she was being given. Well, she threw them out. But in a way, it, if we think about what Robichaud was doing in a kind of, as a kind of act of paternalism uh, in terms of his larger program of equal opportunity, um, it, it presumed that people weren't able to sort things out for themselves, that, that, that the central government, the central provincial government in Fredericton uh, could be responsible for them. They, they weren't agents of their own lives. They were going to be somehow taken care of, which can be okay, but it also says that people who are poor need to be looked after by others. Well, the, the, the people that lived in these rather rural and remote communities in that area were they considered to be particularly poor, particularly remote from other Acadian centers that were larger and uh, so-called more progressive? Well, I mean, there were many studies done. I mean, I've, I've, uh, I, I claimed in the book that it had to be one of the most overstudied populations in Canada. There were studies after study after study, partly to justify the removal of the population. The studies, were, in a sense, were designed to show just how poor they were. And they were, and there were, there were claims that this area, the Kent County, uh, where it was, was the poorest county in New Brunswick, which was one of the poorest provinces in Canada, and that this particular corner of Kent County was one of the poorest parts of the county. So again, just to, to kind of lay it on. And there were certainly... These people were perceived as uh, what we'd call hillbillies. Yes. That's right. There was lots of talk about, you know, they were, uh, you know, there, there was too much interbreeding. Uh, there were, you know, too many cousins marrying each other. Um, it was really quite brutal, the, the, the kind of campaign it was done. I thought that some of these studies, in fact, you know, legitimized the park by delegitimizing the lives that these people lived because you needed to have them seen as people who needed to be moved in order to generate support for the idea of the park. But in fact, and, and, and statistically, again, this was kind of the, the role of the expert in all of this. So they would send in the experts who would collect data. But the data, you know, often would be about, you know, such things as income earned or, uh, in the case of agriculture, uh, crops sold to market. And the problem was that this was not an economy that was highly monetized. Uh, so uh, a typical family would earn some of its income from, uh, from logging uh, with no receipts, some of it from small-scale agriculture, uh, things like uh, blueberries. Uh, raising blueberries was very popular, but people would sell them at the side of the road or would sometimes barter with others. Uh, or fish, but none of it, very little of it was actually sold, and there were rarely receipts. Jean Chrétien 
was the was the minister responsible for Burst Canada at the time. And Chrétien kept, I saw in the correspondence, kept going on about where are the receipts to prove these people had the incomes that they claimed. And they just didn't get it, right, or didn't want to get it. So these people lived, um, you know, it's not a, it, it was an informal economy. Um, it, it was one where people helped each other out, where people, in a sense, without overly idealizing it, understood that there were ways to work nature uh, for their own benefit uh, without overly exploiting the resources that were available. To be sure, there had been a, a movement, a slow movement of people out of the out of the area, which was typical in Atlantic Canada in the post-war period. I mean, there were there weren't enough resources to support the number of children, and so I I think when you talk to the residents now, they kind of recognize that some sort of adjustment would have taken place anyhow, but that it could have taken place over time. I mean, they didn't need to be removed in order for that adjustment to take place. So, um, I, I mean, there's a certain amount of nostalgia, to be sure, uh, and yet there's actually evidence uh, when you dig a, a bit beneath the surface and you connect the dots in terms of how they supported their lives, that in fact there was a kind of viable, informal economy that worked, but that wasn't what the experts were looking for. And it wouldn't have suited their purposes if they had found it. So it was easy to be able to declare that they were poor, they needed to be moved, and when they moved, they'd be better off. Now, so much of your writing, and I would say your documentary work as well, focuses on how the public remembers its past. So can you just describe how the establishment of this park and the removal of the residents in the park is remembered in New Brunswick uh, and perhaps in the rest of Canada today? Well, I don't, I don't think it's remembered uh, much beyond Acadian New Brunswick. Right. Some New Brunswickers, you know, English-speaking New Brunswickers, will have vague notions of it. Well, right. I, I had no idea about this till I read your book. So it's a story, but I, I, I've kind of learned in my Acadian life, I'm now working on the third kind of Acadian project, that these are stories that tend not to be known anywhere outside of Acadie, Acadie. Uh, an Acadian history in particular, I think, is kind of off the beaten path in part because I think we believe or we've come to understand that French-speaking Canada is Quebec. And so the minorities, they certainly feel this way, and I think appropriately for some, to, to some degree that French-speaking life outside of Quebec is not kind of a mainstream thing to talk about. And I think particularly for Acadians, this is a matter of frustration because uh, this is a, a people separate from Quebecers, like we're having this conversation two days before uh, Quebec's Fête Nationale, uh, but the Fête Nationale uh, Acadien is August 15th, and they consciously have a different flag and a different holiday, and they're a different people. So uh, their stories have never been uh, much uh, told, uh, but this story was an important story for them to tell themselves, because the tradition of understanding the past uh, in Acadie um, was for 200 years, largely one that was molded around an idea of Acadians having to uh, be quiet, to keep their heads down, avoid conflict with authority, because the one time that they had really stood up for themselves in 1755, they were deported. This was just before the beginning of the Seven Years' War. Um, 
Acadie, in fact, had been conquered in 1713. Acadians had lived under British rule for 40 years. All they asked was to be neutral. They didn't want to fight for the French. They didn't want to fight for the British. They just wanted to be left alone. But the British, or I should say the American colonists, who badly wanted access to Acadian lands, wouldn't accept this any longer, insisted on Acadian signing that they would support British rule. Um, neutrality was no longer acceptable. The Acadians refused to sign. They stood up for themselves, and they were deported. And so for, for 200 years, the, the, the internalized view of how an Acadian should behave was one that you kind of you keep your head down, you don't get into trouble. And it was symbolized, in a sense, by uh, the Longfellow poem Evangeline, written in the 19th century, ironically, by an American, but, but internalized, internalized by Acadians, because Evangeline was this kind of uh, martyr figure, separated from her boyfriend at the time of the deportation, and she goes around trying to find Gabriel, who dies in her arms. But, but this kind of martyr who doesn't, she, she doesn't protest being removed, and she accepts suffering as part of her fate, was internalized. I mean, even today on the Acadian holiday on August 15th, there'll still be in every community that there would be someone who will be playing the role of uh, Evangeline and Gabriel. But this, this, this notion that you keep your head down, you don't cause trouble, you don't resist authority was a dominant story. And then Kushbukwak came along, where people were prepared to break the code and to stand up and to push back. And it's really in this context that the leader of that resistance, Jackie Botour, became a folk hero uh, because he had the nerve uh, to be able to say, I'm not leaving, which was totally out of character. Now, some people hate Jackie Botour, even to this day, some Acadians, for the fact that he kind of violated the code. It's not the way we behave. On the other hand, it's unmistakable in terms of popular culture, and popular memory, but this was an alternative kind of view of what it meant to be Acadian. Uh, it was gendered. Jackie was the tough guy, often pictured, uh, you know, holding a rifle. Uh, there's no evidence that he particularly did anything terrible to any, anyone, although there's certainly many rumors of it. Um, but it was, uh, it was an image of an Acadian and how they could be that was totally at odds with the, the earlier uh, conception. And so in documentary films, in theater, in music, uh, there emerged a kind of understanding of the story that was built around Jackie in particular. And when I came to the project, one of the things I wanted to do was not to tell the story of Jackie Vautour because it, it has, it's been told many times in, those, in these other contexts. But there were 250 more or less families that left and the Vautours were the only one who stayed. And so then there were the stories of all the other people who, who left. And what's been interesting, now that we're almost 50 years away, it's going to be 50 years in October since the papers were signed, uh, to, create, uh, to create the park, that there's now generations that didn't live through it. And they've gone back to the story and have looked at some of the other families and looked at the decisions that they had to make, sometimes not pushing back, uh, but still rebuilding their lives and trying to create a certain agency of their own without the kind of uh, in-your-face uh, actions that Jackie was also responsible for. So it's a story, all this to say is that it's a story, in the last couple of years there's still been new pieces of theater that have been written. It's a story for Acadians that just doesn't go away.
So that brings me to reconciliation. And we've had a lot of talk of reconciliation in this country because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Uh, was there a reconciliation in this case? Well, for some people, uh, one of the saddest things for me in this whole story is how the, the community of people who are expropriated, because there still is a kind of self-conscious expropriate community, uh, has been divided by the story. Um, there are people who remain committed to this day uh, to the idea that they can get the park back. There are constant legal actions. There's currently one ongoing, uh, headed by the Vautour family, because now it's not just Jackie. It's his, it's his sons, uh, who are you know now Jackie's 85. His sons are in his 60s. And there is a, a group that will never reconcile with parks because they believe that it's their land. And until their land is returned, um, there is no reconciliation. But they're not alone, and I, I, that's kind of what I meant when I, when I said that I was interested in getting beyond Jackie. Uh, I also met, though, many other uh, former residents who kind of recognized that the park isn't going to return their land. And that another way to go would be to work with Parks Canada to try to create recognition within the park that this land was once theirs and to create interpretation within the park. So that when a visitor comes to the park, they don't see only, you know, the beach and, and the forests and the trails, but they also recognize that there was a human history here and a history that didn't begin with the Acadians that uh, went back to the Mi'kmaq, who of course had lived there uh, prior to prior to the Acadian settlers. And so to some degree, there's been, the project ended in a sense, um, when I uh, visited the park for the opening of a new interpretive center, which included a large exhibit, a uh, permanent exhibit, explaining the lives of the communities that had been removed. Uh, it was a somewhat edited version of their lives, uh, perhaps to put Pars Canada in a better light than it deserved, but still it recognized the fact that people for generations had lived there. And so for those residents, there had been some kind of reconciliation for Parks Canada's perspective, they gave up this whole practice uh, of removing people without their permission because of Kushibigwak. Well, that's what I wanted to say. This resistance permanently altered Parks Canada policy. Is that correct? Absolutely. Uh, they had done it elsewhere, uh, almost simultaneous to the Kushibigwak case at uh, Fourchillon National Park in the Gaspé region of Quebec. Um, they had done a very similar kind of thing, not quite resisted in the same sort of way, but still creating significant unhappiness. And ultimately, Pars came to the conclusion that this wasn't really a very useful way to go. Um, and so it was because of Kushbegwak in particular that by the mid-70s, they had already abandoned the policy. So there was nothing, there was nothing from that point on, there was no reason for Pars Canada to continue to, in a sense, walk away from recognizing what had happened, except for the fact that there were people who wanted to get their land back, which has always made it, you know, somewhat complicated. But there were people within parks, to be sure, who, who wanted to find some kind of reconciliation. Many of the residents moved literally meters on the other side of the border that was created when the park was done. I know people who moved their houses down the road. I mean, you could do that if you wanted. One of the options was to move your house. And I, and I know people who moved their houses literally down the road. They lived on the same road as they had before, but just be, just outside outside the park border. And, um, and, the, and for these people, uh, for some of them, 
uh, it was important to, to recognize that they weren't going to be able to go back to what they had, but at the same time, they could work with parks to try to have this pass recognized. So I understand that there is a website associated with this book. Can you tell us very briefly about its purpose? We did a, a series of interviews uh, with the former residents. In part, the website stands on its own, but it also reinforces uh, things that I talked about in the book. We took people back, in many cases, to their land for the first time. By then, it would have been 45 years, so there were, there were, there were tears. And what we created were a series, there's 26 uh, what we call capsules. Uh, they're two or three minutes of, uh, of uh, a video. Uh, you see the individual, you see uh, archival documents we have of what the land looked like at the time. And so you can contrast the landscape uh, from 50 years ago to what it looks like today as people would go around the land often and narrate what had been there before. The website is called Returning the Voices to Kushbubak National Park. And it returns the voices on various levels, right? So we were returning the voices in the sense that they were physically coming back to the park. And it allows people to, to in a sense, uh, see the park or hear the park with those voices embedded in it because the navigational tool on the site uh, is, in fact, the expropriation map uh, that had been created at the time to remove people. Finally, for people who are visitors, so if anyone listening to this is going to be a visitor to the park, you could actually access this on your phone, and there's uh, a means by which you could actually be directed by a Google map uh, to the site, so we would be returning the voices uh, through that uh, dimension as well. Ron, thank you so much for being part of this podcast. It was a pleasure to talk to you. My pleasure. My guest today was Ronald Rudin, the author of Kuji Bujuak. Removal, Resistance, and Remembrance at a Canadian National Park, published by the University of Toronto Press in 2016. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you can become a subscribing member and help support the preservation and publication of documentary history in Canada. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. I also want to thank the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Greg Marshallden, and this podcast was recorded in Montreal on June 21, 2019. It was produced by Hugh Backhurst at Ryerson University in Toronto. We look forward to you joining us again.